And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Judges chapter 2. Praise God for his salvation. We uh, we're going to do things a little different during the rest of our time this morning. The rest of our time in, in worship, we're going to divide into, into three parts. Uh, one, we're going to spend time in this text, and really kind of an abbreviated time in this text. I just want you to see a couple of, of truths. And then I want us to spend some time reflecting on this text, letting this text soak in and some time in prayer and scripture and song. And then we're going to let that lead us into where we started last week, thinking about what God is doing in and through us as he leads us into India this year. And so we're going to start here in the text. And even this is a little different because usually on Sundays in this Bible reading plan we're walking through, on Sunday we're spending time for the most part, in text that we've already read through. But this morning, we're actually going to be kind of previewing where we're going to be reading over the next week. We just got to Judges chapter 1 yesterday in our Bible reading plan. And what I want us to do is look at an overview of what we're going to be reading this week in Judges. And so the picture I want you to see when we come to the book of Judges, the first 18 verses are good. Things are going well. The people of God have taken the promised land as he told them to do. But God had told them, when you go into the promised land, to remove, destroy all of the idols and false gods and immorality and peoples there in the promised land. You're to drive them all out. And what we find is around verse 19 in Judges chapter 1, in fact, just look back there, the word but comes into play. And God's people had done all that he told them to do in taking the land, but, listen to verse 19, the Lord was with Judah, he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants, inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And this begins a pattern throughout the rest of end of chapter 1 where it says they did not drive out the people as God had told them to do. Look at verse 21. The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 32, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And then verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. That's, that's the picture. The people of God did not follow God's commands to drive out the people and their immorality and their idolatrous practices. And as a result of compromising on this level, God's people ended up giving in to those idolatrous practices and that immorality. And that's what the book of Judges is about. I want you to look with me at Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And we're going to read from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. And this right here is a summary of the whole book of Judges right here in this one passage. Start with me in verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals 
And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. These verses sum up the whole book of Judges. It's a story of God's people disobeying God's commands and the results that flow from that. And it all started, you saw it back up in verse 11 and 12, when they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, and went after other gods instead. That's why God had told them to rid the land of the Canaanites and those peoples there because they were polytheistic people who worshipped all kinds of different gods. And when they compromised on that level, then destruction flowed. And the book of Judges is about what happens, is about what happens when you leave the one true God to worship other gods. I want to show you two truths, very simply, what happens when when the people of God forsake the one God over Israel in the book of Judges. Number one, they illustrated man's depravity, man's sinfulness, man's wickedness. This book is a low point in Israel's moral life. It is morally taxing just to read through this book because you see see the sinfulness of man on display at every turn. The core of their sin, you've got this in your notes, is blatant idolatry. This is the primary problem. Israel's sin problem in the book of Judges that you're going to read about this week, Israel's sin problem is ultimately a worship problem. They turn aside and worship these other gods. The author of Judges is intentional to show us along the way that the reason they are indulging in such spiraling immorality is because they are worshiping foreign gods. Chapter 10, verse 6, gives us a list of all the different gods that the Israelites are worshiping. That was the core of their sin, blatant idolatry. And the consequence of their sin was rampant immorality. 
As a result of idolatry, the moral compass of God's people was destroyed, and they delved deeper and deeper and deeper into rampant immorality. You read Judges this week, you will come across some of the most twisted, dark, brutal stories in Scripture. Morality, even even among the judges, we're going to talk about in a second. But you will you'll see stories of idolatry, betrayal, murder, rape. It is especially near the end of the book. You see pictures of immorality that are are in some senses inconceivable, and it's grounded in idolatry. James Montgomery Boyce once said, "No people ever rise above their idea of God." A loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of a people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. Mark it down. This is not in your notes, but this is huge. People become like the God they worship. People become like the God they worship. Immorality does not happen in a vacuum. Immorality flows from idolatry. That's what we see. They illustrated man's depravity in the book of Judges, and as a result, they needed God's deliverance. They needed God's deliverance, and so this is what God would do. He would raise up judges. Now, when we think of judges, we think of people sitting on a bench. But really, in the book of Judges, this picture of judges is more like a warrior or a ruler What would happen is God's people in their sin would be disciplined by God. And God would send the Ammonites or the Canaanites or the Philistines to to be a demonstration of his judgment upon his people. And they would repent, they would cry out to God, and God would raise up judges, warriors, rulers, who would deliver them from their enemies. And that was the whole point. The people of Israel needed someone to rescue them from divine judgment. God takes sin seriously among his people. God abhors idolatry. He hates it. And he disciplines his people with severity. And God's people would experience that discipline all throughout the book of Judges. But 12 different times from chapter 3 to chapter 16, God raises up a judge, not only to deliver them from divine judgment, but they needed someone to show them divine mercy. And so that's what God would do. And through a, through a judge, an imperfect judge at that, God would show them mercy. But then after God had shown them mercy and delivered them, you know what they would do? They would go right back to their sin. They would go right back to their sin. Time after time after time after time. So that when you get to chapter 16 and you see the final one of these judges raised up. From chapter 17 to chapter 21 in this book. You don't see repentance again. You see in a sense God's people given over to their immorality. And the book closes with that deafening verse. Judges 21, 25. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. It's one of the most depressing ends to a Bible book. And it's there for a a purpose. This book is intended to show us that God's people in their sin are under divine judgment and in need of divine mercy. And no judge, no matter how great they are, is able to, to save them from divine judgment and show them ultimate divine mercy. 
Sets the stage for kings to come, none of whom will be able to do that either. Prophets to come, none of whom will be able to do that. The book of Judges leaves us longing, wanting, waiting for God to send one who is indeed able to rescue us from divine judgment and is indeed able to show us divine mercy. The book of Judges leaves us longing for Jesus. For God to come himself and to rescue us and to show us his mercy. So that's, that's, that's the book of Judges in a nutshell. Now, there's not a one-to-one correlation here on a variety of levels, but I do want us to think about the truths that we're going to see in Judges this week that we just talked about in light of what God is doing in our midst as we go toward India. Because the reality is there is one God over Israel in the book of Judges and there is one God over India today. And I want you to think with me about how the people of India are illustrating man's depravity. They worship in India seemingly innumerable gods. Some people call India the land of a million gods. Some people say there are upwards of 330 million gods and goddesses worshipped in India. It is, you go to India, it is gods, gods everywhere. You're walking down the sidewalk and gods are for sale. You're riding down the streets and you pass people bowing down in front of trees and shrines. You walk down the alleys of urban slums and you round a corner to see an altar where impoverished men and women are coming and bowing down and throwing coins to gods made of wood. You ride in the cab and you see hanging from the mirror or sitting on the dashboard numerous gods. You walk into a small one-room home and you see all over the walls images of gods and goddesses. There are gods everywhere. Objects of worship everywhere. Seemingly innumerable gods leading to seemingly inconceivable practices. Rampant immorality. William Carey father of modern missions, uh, pioneered mission work in India. And a couple months ago when we went, we were in Bengal, which is where he, he began his ministry, and to, to think of what William Carey would write about when he came to India for the first time and was appalled by some of the practices associated with Hinduism, practices like sati, where a Hindu man upon his death would have his body burned. But not just his body. His wife, though alive, would need to be burned with him. And so it was the practice. And Carrie observed and looked around literally hundreds of times. Protesting, yelling, but unable to stop this practice where a bride alive, many times a child bride, would be strapped down with her dead husband's corpse and burned to death. 
to hear him talk and write about human sacrifices offered to Hindu gods. Now this was at the turn of the 19th century and some of those practices are not still the same but immorality is in a sense unchanged. India is known today for feticide, the practice of determining the sex of a fetus in the womb and if it is a female making sure to prevent that child from living whether in the fetus or having the baby and then throwing the baby out in infanticide and the reason being in many contexts because of the dowry price that is offered must be offered from a family of a daughter to a groom one advertisement for a feticide said, better to pay 500 rupees now, which is Indian currency, rupees, better to pay 500 rupees now than 50,000 rupees later in dowry. Some sources estimate that between 35 and 40 million girls and women are missing from the Indian population due to this practice. Other practices abound. The International Justice Mission reports, and I quote, the trafficking into forced prostitution victimizes more children in India than anywhere else in the world. Massive sex trafficking. In addition, South Asia, which is predominantly India, is home to the world's largest population of slaves today. Ladies and gentlemen, immorality does not happen in a vacuum. Immorality flows from idolatry. The people of India illustrate man's depravity and they need God's deliverance. Feel the weight of this. Over 600 million people in northern India, 99.5% of them literally worshiping millions of false gods. There are masses under divine judgment in their sin. Don't miss this. We sometimes get a picture of people around the world as innocent men and women just waiting to hear the gospel. It's not true. They are guilty, guilty of sin, guilty of rejection, rejecting God. They're rebelling against the authority of God over them, and they are under eternal divine judgment in sin. masses under divine judgment and sin, and most are unaware of divine mercy in the gospel. Most of them have never heard that the one true God loves them and desires to bring them salvation. Most of them have never heard that the one true God has taken the judgment for their sin upon himself and his son and has made a way to free them from sin and freedom, free them from futile, foolish efforts to earn your way to God. God has made a way to you and he has redeemed you and reconciled you to himself and most of them have never, ever even heard that. Masses under divine judgment, most unaware of divine mercy. That is the picture in India.
Obviously, though, we would be amiss if we took this picture of one God over Israel and one God over India and did not apply the same truths to ourselves. For there is one God over us. And ladies and gentlemen, in this room, we illustrate man's depravity. It seems so blatant when you go into an Indian home or you walk along Indian streets and you see these gods everywhere and just say, look at this idolatry. But in the process, you realize we are often blind to our own idolatry. Ladies and gentlemen, why do we think our materialism is any different? Why would we think that bowing down to gods of money and success and fame and recognition and sex and sports and worldly pleasure and worldly entertainment is any different than these things? We give our affections to all of these things in the world. At best, our affections are divided between them and God, and that is the essence of idolatry. Giving affection to anyone or anything that is not worthy of affection. And there's only one God who is worthy of affection and worship. We're blind to our own idolatry. To pick back up where Boyce left off, the result is immorality. He said, we are startled by the disregard for human life that has overtaken large segments of the Western world. But what do we expect when countries like ours openly turn their back upon God? We deplore the breakdown of moral standards, but what do we expect when we have focused our worship services on ourselves and our own often trivial needs rather than on God? Our view of God affects what we are and do. But we don't want to see it. So not only are we blind to our own idolatry, but we pass the blame for our own immorality. This is the name of the game in our culture. You are not responsible for your sin. Someone did something to you. Something happened to you. This is why this is the case. It is not the problem in culture. It's certainly not me. It is the other factors at work. And in the process, we miss the point. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to in any way underestimate the effects of other sins on our lives. But the reality is we are responsible for our sin. And it's not something outside of us, it is something inside of us. And we can point the finger all day long at feticide in India. But the reality is, over the last 40 years, we have aborted nearly 50 million babies because they were not convenient for us. And we have fed a multi-billion dollar pornographic industry. Fed by what some estimate is up to 50% of men in the church. We illustrate man's depravity and we need 
God's deliverance. And praise God, we're not in the middle of the book of Judges or the Kings or the Prophets. Praise God, we're reading this on this side of the cross, and we know Jesus has saved our lives from divine judgment. Think of it. Christ has taken all of your filth and my filth, all of your evil, wicked thoughts and my evil, wicked thoughts. He has taken every single one of them and he has put them on his son instead of us. Jesus has taken the punishment due every single one of our sins upon himself. He has delivered us from divine judgment. And not only that, not only has he forgiven us, but he has freed us. We don't have to go back to our sin. Like we see over and over again in the book of Judges, we're free from sin, free to walk in victory over sin, not to go back to that which we have been saved from. So what shall we do then? Shall we sit back with that news? Jesus has saved our lives from divine judgment. Shall we sit back with that news and just soak it in while we turn a deaf ear to millions upon millions of people who have never heard that? Absolutely not. We are not saved to just soak it in. We are saved to spend our lives proclaiming divine mercy. That is what we do. We give ourselves, we give our lives, we give our family, we give our our time, we give our money, we give everything we have, our very lives, making this mercy known to the ends of the earth. That is the only response to the one true God. And now the stage is properly set for us to think together about what God is leading us to do in India this year. I want to invite a few folks to join me out here. Mentioned last week that we would dive in this week into more specifics of what radical experiment and its effects will look like in India. And so I want you to have an opportunity to hear from Jonathan, our global disciple-making pastor, a couple members of our church that are involved in various ministries that we're working with in India, whether it's Ronnie Brock and Compassion and Spen- or Spencer Sutton and Never Thirst, and then a couple of members of our staff who are involved in translation work that we're doing or short-term mission work that we're doing. And, and along the way, I want you to hear from a couple of our brothers in India via Skype as well as we think about what this whole picture looks like. So, Jonathan, turn thanks, it over to you. Thanks. You know, it's an incredible privilege to be a part of a faith family that's sacrificing our resources here for the sake of urgent physical and spiritual needs in a place like India. How are we doing that? What does that look like? How are we involved in uh, serving the people of India? Let's talk first about for the sake of the lost. For the sake of the lost, we share the word. How are we sharing the word in India through radical experiment? Think to understand how we're doing this. First of all, we have to realize that there are millions of people in India that still do not have access to the word of God in their own language. This is further complicated by illiteracy. Even people that do have access to the word of God in their own language can't just open up the Bible and read it. So how are we doing this? And I've asked Angela to come. She's um, our media director here at Brook Hills. And she also oversees the translation and distribution of cross-cultural resources around the world. 
So, Angela, could you explain to us and share a little bit about how we are addressing the need of access to the Word of God in our partnerships in northern India? Sure, absolutely. 18% of the world is illiterate. Two-thirds of that 18% live in eight countries. India is one of those countries. 39% of the folks in India are illiterate. In other words, they cannot read or write, and it's imperative that we get the gospel to them in an auditory way. And we've identified a language group in India called the Kuruk, and they need the gospel. They need desperately to hear God's word so that they could have hope in life. There's about two million of them that live in the area where we will be focusing our attention. And we are going to help get the gospel in an auditory way to them because that's the way they learn. They learn by hearing and then they repeat it. And so we want to get that language to them. And we're going to partner with two different partnerships in order to make that happen in India. Great. Could you tell us a little bit about those partnerships and the impact that that is having on people's lives and their access to the Word of God? Absolutely. The two partnerships we're going to work with, one, the Seed Company, which is uh, sponsored by Wycliffe. And what Wycliffe discovered is the best way to accelerate the translation of God's Word is by starting with stories. And so what they do is they send a team into India and they work with people of peace there and they begin to translate 20 to 30 stories chronologically throughout the Bible. And they work with teams there, locals, to get that done and they employ those people to do that. And then they take these stories and they go into villages and they begin listening groups, story groups, and people begin to hear the Word of God for the first time. And of course, when that happens, that generates incredible interest. And then they take it from there, and they continue to work with the people learning the language, and they translate it into the book of Luke, and then into the New Testament. Now, one of the things that Wycliffe discovered is you can translate the Bible, and of course, if you can't read it, that's not very helpful. So they partnered with Faith Comes by Hearing, and Faith Comes by Hearing is going to be our second partnership in India that we're going to work with. Faith Comes by Hearing takes the auditory recordings, and they put them into what they call a proclaimer, and we're going to demonstrate that for you with my lovely assistant here this morning. The proclaimer is... Um, a digital recording. It's encased in this, this um, recorder, and it operates several ways. It's solar-powered, and it also has a hand crank, and then, of course, it has an adapter. They can use that as well. It holds about 75 hours worth of charge, and even if it's complete, doesn't have any battery at all, if you pop that solar panel up, it can operate off of solar power. And it is uh, really designed for a, as large a group as 300 people to hear the Word of God. And we're going to demonstrate that for you this morning so you guys can hear exactly what that sounds like. So give me just a minute. I'm going to press the button here, and we'll get it started. And I'm going to crank it up as loud as it goes so you can hear what this Okay, that's Bengali. You're listening to Bengali. And what they do is they take these proclaimers into villages and set them up, and they begin listening groups there. And what that leads to, of course, is people hearing the gospel, becoming followers of Christ. That grows into church plants. And then they can use the scriptures that are on the proclaimers over and over for discipleship. And so that is how we're going to meet the great need of God's word and the lost in India. Isn't it exciting, church, how our giving here, we can partner to share the word in India. What about for the sake of the poor? For the sake of the poor, we need to show the word. 
We need to tangibly demonstrate the gospel, just as we read about and, and studied through Luke this past fall. How are we doing that in India? How are we partnering together with our resources to show the word to the people in northern India? I'd like to introduce you to Ronnie Brock. Ronnie's a member here at Brook Hills. And Ronnie's also a regional director for church engagement with Compassion International. And Compassion's mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. As many of you know, we've been partnering with Compassion to sponsor 21 child survivor programs in, um, across India. And um, Ronnie, could you tell us a little bit about how those child survivor programs um, are addressing the needs of the poor, especially mothers and children in India? Sure. As Jonathan said, we are involved in Compassion. We partner with over 400 churches in India, several of whom have the child survival programs uh, that he mentioned. And then we are involved with 21 of those. Uh, the, child, the stated vision for our child survival programs is that we want to be the leader in addressing the mortality rate or saving mothers and babies uh, from dying in the, in the areas of poverty. We do this in four areas. First of all is, is the physical area. We, uh, we have programs that identifies the needs of the, of the mothers and the babies, and we address those immunization, shot records, education, as far as how to take care of the children and their nutrition. There's also a cognitive program, and, and it is for literacy for the mothers. It is for uh, teaching them, again, about the developmental stages of a child. There's also the spiritual elements that we have in our programming. Everything that we do will happen at the local church level. And, just, and everything will be happening basically at the feet of the pastors and the church leaders. I know that over in the last three months, we've had 23 of the mothers that have uh, placed faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that is the, the third element. The fourth element is a... Um, I forgot my fourth element there. All of a sudden, uh, it is a social economic. We have income generating programs that we work along with the mothers so that they may be a uh, they may contribute to the to the overall health and well being of the family by being providers of income and and things such as that. But those are the four areas that we mainly work in. Ronnie, could you tell me a little bit about the impact that this is having on the lives of the mothers and the children and those communities? Yes. Uh, in some of the areas that we work with, I know specifically one area, the, uh, per thousand births, there are 68 deaths of the infants. For that, that would be a national average for that, or the average for that area. For the, the, the same rate for the mothers in the child survival program, per thousand births, there are eight deaths. So you can go to, you see, bringing that number down from 68 to 8 is truly having an impact. The last report I saw for our 21 CSPs, it was exciting. The first thing they wanted to report is they, we are happy to report that there were no mother or child deaths in the last three months. And I remember reading that and thinking, you know, in my culture, that's not even newsworthy. But it is the first thing that they wanted to share. And so just know that, that we have a part of of that. And uh, anyway, that's, I could go on. Thanks, thanks. Again, this is where our giving, and through our giving, we're partnering with local churches to minister to the poor, especially mothers and children. Another one of the really um, 
difficult and devastating needs in northern India is access to clean water. 386,000 Indian children die before the age of five due to waterborne disease. Catch that number. 386,000 children before the age of five. I want to introduce you to Spencer Sutton. Spencer is also a member here at Brook Hills. He also runs an organization called Never Thirst, and they provide access to clean water through the local church, and they've been working in India since 2008. Spencer, would you, would you tell us and explain a little bit about how you all are addressing the, the need of clean water, specifically across India? Sure. Um, it is as bad as Jonathan says. I mean, in in the villages that we travel in, if you just think about it, there's almost 130 million people without access to clean water in India today. And so the way we work is pretty simple. Here in the States, we, um, we raise awareness. We're advocates for the thirsty and for the poor. We raise awareness and we raise funds. When we receive those funds, we give 100% through to projects on the ground. So we don't keep any of it for administrative um, purposes even the radical experiment funds, 100% go specifically to projects on the ground. Um, and the way we work on the ground is through partnerships. We couldn't do it without partnerships. So we have carefully screened and expert water partners on the ground who then are connected with local churches in communities. And these local churches either have a presence in the community, they have, there is a church, or they have been preaching the gospel and are aiming to plant a church in this community. So what happens is when the water comes where there is none, uh, it makes a huge impact on the health of the kids and also in the re receptivity of the community to a pastor or to a local church. Hmm. Now we're helping sponsor about 100 wells in, in India. Can you tell me some of the impact that putting those wells in India is having on people's lives and on the church and those communities? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the, the impact is immediate. And it's hard for us to think about because every single morning when we wake up, we have water wherever we go. It's, it's easy for us, and it's not for them. Every morning, you have mothers and children who wake up and the first thing they think about is how am I going to get water today? That's the main concern. And because they have a lack of access to water, they end up traveling for miles every day to collect dirty, contaminated water, which often makes their children sick. And there's a possibility that they could die from that water. And so the impact is immediate. When clean water comes, it comes along with sanitation and hygiene training. And the children's health is immediately improved. Uh, skin disease is gone, and because they're washing with clean water, they can actually, really interesting, they can eat more meals a day because they have water. If they only have five gallons of water for washing and cooking and drinking, then they're limited even into how much they can eat. A great example, real quick, is a village I visited in September and then again in November. I was there in September with some friends, and it was a depressing, depressing scene. They, no smiles on the kids, skin disease. They took us to where they get water from buckets just in big open wells. Uh, in one of the wells, there were frogs, and the other one just covered with algae. And this is where they get their water. And so in the weeks following, clean water was brought through the local church. And I was back in November, and it had completely changed. I mean, it, it was amazing. I didn't think I was in the same village, but it was. I mean, I was, and 
I even interviewed the pastor and asked him about the change. And he said, before the water, uh, he said, they used to threaten me and tell me not to come in the village to preach the gospel. He said, but now that we have clean water, he said, they call me uncle, which is a term of endearment. And so to us, that's, that's the key, to see the health and the poverty improve and also the gospel have an impact in their lives. Again, this is how our giving is sharing the word and showing the word in India. What about the sake of the church? For the sake of the church, we have to teach the word. How are we teaching the word? What is the state of the church in northern India? Operation World says that poor discipling and lack of, t- of teaching have made nominalism, syncretism, and losses to, hin- to Hinduism rampant in India. So there's a huge need for training. Now we've got to think about what our primary mission is. Our primary mission is to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Do you know that there are still 325 people groups in India where there are no known believers and they're not being engaged with the gospel? Our primary partner for church planting among unreached people groups is the International Mission Board. I have the privilege to introduce you to Sanford. Sanford is a church planting trainer with the International Mission Board and works in northern India. He's a Hindu background believer himself. He wasn't born into a Christian family and didn't know the gospel. He came to know the gospel, and for the last couple of decades, he has been planting churches and training others to plant churches. This week, I was able to have a Skype conversation with him and talk a little bit about our partnership with them to train church planters and church leaders. Let's turn and look at the screens and listen to what he had to say. How would you describe the needs in India? First of all, people are living in the darkness. They need to be seeing the light of Jesus. And second, they need to be rescued by the gospel. To do that, the main needs is we need to train local churches and leaders to reach out the unreached people group that are living in the darkness. How are you training the church in India to make disciples? We are training people in two different ways. Training leaders to give the leadership and training uh, the local uh, Christians to learn how they will fulfill the great commandments. The name of a course is Tree of Life. Tree of Life is a tool of church planting um, training and through that training we are uh, trying to um, prepare leaders to uh, teach other leaders and prepare them at the same time we are also training local um, church members to take the responsibility by themselves uh, to reach uh, reach out uh, uh, lost souls and lost people we are training them not to be hearer only, but become a doer. And secondly, we are training them not to be a believer only, but become a disciple. We are expecting that 100% of the existing member of the churches will engage following Jesus. 
It's for example, we are teaching the first level of tree of life is I will make you a fishers of men if you follow me. When we talk about that, we just reverse a question out of that um, uh, verse. We say, if you are following Jesus, it means you are fishing. If you are not fishing, are you following Jesus? That's why we are trying to encourage people or existing churches and training them to become disciples, not, uh, not become believers. Because the Great Commission doesn't say, go and make believers. It says, go and make disciples. So we want to make disciples rather than making believers. We commission them to go and teach, continue teaching the way we have learned from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. So they go back and they start teaching the same way. How have you seen God at work through this training? For the last uh, four years, we started seeing that um, 18,000 people were baptized within the last four years through this training and 4,000 house churches being planted within the last four years. In that way, we could see that the local people are being expert of reaching out the unrich and planting new house churches. As you can see, the local church is key to accomplishing the mission that we've been given in the Great Commission. What we want to see is healthy churches that are engaging their communities, both demonstrating and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing those communities transformed. I have the opportunity now to introduce you to another one of our partners in northern India. His name is Ramesh, and he's the executive director of Cooperative Outreach of India, based in Delhi. And we've been partnering with Ramesh for a few years now, sending short-term teams and being involved in, in their ministry. And um, we were able to have a Skype conversation with him as well this week and just talk a little bit more about how we are partnering with them and partnering with the local church in um, northwestern India. So I'd like you guys to turn and, and focus again on the screens and hear what um, our brother Ramesh had to say. How would you describe the needs in India? There has been a kind of spiritual emptiness uh, in our country. The reason is uh, people are very religious. They are searching God and they are searching God in everything. And for that reason, we have more than 33 million gods and goddesses. And people worship anything and everything. They worship trees and plants and reptiles and animals. Uh, anything they see, they start worshiping. And that's how uh, they've been searching God in different, different places. So there has been a kind of spiritual hollowness, emptiness uh, in the minds of people. The need is great here. And uh, uh, in that backdrop, uh, backdrop uh, we have been serving the communities, uh, going into the villages, uh, equipping the people and training those people and releasing them into the ministry so they continue to uh, plant the churches in unreached areas. So this is how the ministry has been basically going on right now. How are you training the church in India to make disciples? We 
have uh, different kind of trainings that have been going on in uh, northern part of India. We have been uh, having a small formal Bible school where we train people uh, for three months and then uh, it's residential classes and after that they get into the uh, uh, communities, the villages and they, they have to plant the churches, they uh, work there and again they come back for three months and again they are trained and uh, then they are sent again to the community. So this is how the process goes and we expect that uh, when these leaders are prepared, they would have uh, prepared at least two leaders with them in the first year time. So this is the task they are given and they need to identify those leaders and they need to train and mentor those leaders along with them. What is your process for sending out church planters? Each church planter basically has been given a responsibility to reach out minimum about uh, uh, five to seven villages. That's what they can cover. So like these uh, 30 uh, new church planters, uh, like they have come in and these uh, 30 church planters, uh, they would go and uh, they would uh, multiply those uh, villages. So uh, that's how they would be able to basically uh, cover uh, over 150 to 200 villages they'll be covering. And each village consists of uh, people about uh, uh, 700 to 1,000 people. What impact are these church plants having in the villages? Just because the church is meeting their social needs, Church is meeting their spiritual needs. Villagers are responding to, uh, to the gospel and they've been coming in droves to the Lord. Brook Hills has uh, come in in order to partner and provide that uh, much needed support at very right time, at the time uh, when we needed to uh, help our people grow in uh, leadership, in discipleship, and encourage women and uh, youth and that is the very right assistance we have got from uh, Brookings, and we are so uh, grateful to the Lord for this partnership. And uh, uh, in the days to come, uh, we would be imparting this uh, uh, leadership training to the men folk from the villages and leadership training to the women folk in the villages. We would be continuing to train the youth and children as well. And this is how. They've been trying to impact the whole community uh, uh, in northern part of India. Church, this is how we are serving the people of India. Through your sacrificial giving to the church budget, we are able to partner to share the word, show the word, and teach the word, and therefore serve the world, serve the people specifically of northern India. But we know that our giving isn't enough. We also must go. We must give and we must go. I want to introduce you to Jim Foxworthy, a.k.a. Fox. Fox is a member of our faith family, and he also owns his own consulting firm. And he works part-time with the Global Disciple Making Team, helping facilitate short-term mission teams and businesses' mission. Fox, can you tell us a little bit about how uh, we can um, do effective short-term mission teams and how we're building that in our partnerships in India? Sure, Jonathan. The first thing that uh, we all need to be doing is be in prayer. 
We need to be in prayer and asking God to show us where he might want us to serve in another context. Secondly, um, it's very important to have trained leaders. And we provide the training for leaders uh, that lead your short-term trips. And if anybody would like to be a leader and hasn't been trained, just see us and we'll um, let you know how that can be accomplished. The um, third thing is um, really looking at uh, preparation. And preparation is done in three ways. Uh, we expect each team leader to prepare the team uh, spiritually, and we expect them to prepare the team um, in a cultural uh, setting and also logistically, and what needs to happen to make sure that you get there and get home. Um, the third thing is, is to um, go with an attitude, and it's an attitude of showing up and seeing what God has in store for you. Too many times we go, well, what are we going to do, or go with our agenda, and if that's our agenda, then it's about us, and it's not about our partners on the ground or about doing God's work uh, where we're going. And a lot of times that does more harm than good. So we need to not forget that the real purpose of our uh, going out is to be the light of Christ and to be the hands and feet of Christ. And then um, in speaking of India, uh, how that might look in India, um, we're going to be looking at opportunities to uh, do surveys for where water wells may go, and we may be involved in compassion sites or seeing compassion sites, working in slum ministry, uh, working in a um, battered women's home and an uh, orphanage there, and also doing some teaching of pastors. So there's a number of different things, that's just to name a few, but a number of different things that I know are outlined to do. But again, it's really about uh, just being flexible, and being flexible and trusting God that he will use us in the way he wants us uh, to be used in that context so that we can make a difference in his name. Fox, can you also tell us a little bit about how we can... Um how we can follow through on our 2% commitment, our commitment to spend 2% of this year in another context around the world. What does that process look like? Sure. Well, we have 31 trips uh, posted right now, and we uh, have seven of those 31 to India. Uh, we can only schedule or, or put trips on the uh, schedule that where we have really good partnerships and where we know we can live up to that commitment. Because if we don't live up to that commitment, we um, are hurting our partners. When we promise them that we're going to bring a team and they go to the expense and to the effort to arrange for that, and if we have to cancel those, that, that harms them. But th with that, if people uh, have looked on the calendar and don't see a um, a date that works for you and your small group wants to go or if you have at least five people that are truly committed to going, uh, let us know and we'll try to contact one of our partners and see if there's a possibility of, of creating a trip for you. Thanks. Thanks, Fox. So this is how we're serving the world, around the world. Specifically today, we're talking about India. This is how we show the word, share the word, teach the word, and thus serve the world. And we've talked about doing this for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the church, but ultimately, it's for the sake of Christ. We've talked about how we can give and how our giving is being used in this way. We've talked about how to go, but we haven't talked about how we can also be praying. Prayer is something we can do 
anytime, anywhere. We can do right here. And I want us to take a few minutes this morning, and I want us to be in prayer, intentional prayer, for the partnerships that we've talked about, for the work that God is doing in India through uh, this faith family, through you. So we're going to spend the next few minutes in an intentional time of prayer. Let's pray together as a faith family. Father, we praise you for your great grace and mercy toward us. We praise you that we have been born into a context where we have heard the gospel. We know that we had nothing to do with where we were born. We praise you that we've been born into a context where we have not had to worry about water because it has been available to us. We know that you have given us this great grace and mercy not so that we might sit back and soak it in, but so that we might spend ourselves making your grace and mercy known to the ends of the earth. And so we pray this morning that you would use us for that purpose. We confess, Lord God, that you alone are God. You alone are worthy of worship in this room, and you alone are worthy of worship in India. None of those millions of gods or goddesses are worthy of glory and honor and devotion. You alone are worthy. And so we pray that you would use us to make your great worth known. We pray that in the process, God, you would help people who are starving or thirsty to live, to survive, to thrive. We pray that you would do it in a way that your gospel is front and center every step. We pray that you would use us to serve our brothers and sisters in churches in India well. God, help, them to, help us to serve them in a way that empowers, strengthens, enables, equips them to do, just as Sanford said, to make disciples of all nations. We pray for these unreached people groups that this year will hear the gospel proclaimed for the first time. In these villages, God, we pray that people would come to Christ. We pray that Jesus is Lord would be spoken in the Karuk's language. And we pray, knowing that there's coming a day when the Karuk's language will be singing your praises for your salvation. And we praise you for the privilege you've given us of being a part of making that a reality. And, and so we pray, God, that you would spend us, spend us for your sake in Birmingham and India and everywhere in between. In Jesus' name we pray.